a Podcast One production. We like to think of ourselves in Australia as independent, far-flung land, girt by sea, removed from the madness, especially the political madness that seems to have gripped the Western world. Or are we? I'm Adam Peacock, and yes, Peacock Politics is all about Australian politics. However, does what happened beyond our borders have an influence on how our system operates? In an earlier episode, we learned our system is based on a hybrid of the British and American systems. So, how does what happens there change or twist what's going on in our backyard? For instance, when Donald Trump tweets with caps lock on at 3am in the White House about, I don't know, US trade partnerships or something, how does that change our political narrative? My guest is an expert in international politics with an emphasis on America having worked in Washington during the Barack Obama administration and also with Julia Gillard during her time in Australian politics. Bruce Wolpe is also a senior fellow at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, say that with a mouthful of marbles, and a contributor on US politics to Sky News Australia. Bruce, thanks for your time. Great and to be here, Adam. Thank you so much. No worries. Now, speaking of time, time is valuable, is it not? Because we're just one tweet away from Armageddon? Uh, it can happen at any moment. Uh, the president, as we speak, is in, is in Biarritz, France. Uh, I think we're safe. He's sleeping at this hour. <laughs> uh, but when he gets up, anything... I mean, take last Friday. He gets up and he, ha- he says, well, who is the biggest enemy of the United States, President Xi or the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board? And then he says, and to American companies doing business in China, you are hereby ordered <laughs> to think about dismantling your operations in China. So, and this has been a hallmark from the beginning of his president, certainly during the campaign, but then as president. And I think everyone in Australia wakes up and says, what the hell did he do last night? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's how you greet the day, right? With your coffee. Oh, well, I, I go football results, yes. probably cricket results, Trump tweets, and whatever else is going on you're, in that order on my Twitter You're saner feed. than I am. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> now, a general question to get us going. Is Western politics, like the world economic markets, for instance, what happens overseas affects what happens here in Australia as a follow-on? No, absolutely. And, and, and several, a couple things. First, Australia, understanding that, has always projected itself into the world. More people here have passports as a percentage of the population than a lot of other people. The, uh, the country understands trading relationships, and Australia got rid of its trade barriers and became an outward-looking nation and really set the gold standard for the kind of agreements you should have that are good at home and good abroad, and so it's a win-win for Australia's trading partners. The country, because, you know, it's a demographics have changed. More Asian Australians exist. Uh, I think over a quarter of the country was born overseas and then their descendants. So the country is becoming is a truly multicultural country and it's attuned to what's going on in the world. So if you're, you know, Greek and there's a crisis in Greece, you're paying attention to it. And uh, of course, there's the British heritage, the American influence and so forth. But I find uh, this country really uh, wired with uh, the rest of the world. And so they're worried about the big power sneezing and Australia getting pneumonia because of the interconnections. And that's, so that's absolutely true. And I think it's a tribute to the country that it pays attention like that. Is it a clear and present danger, what you just touched on all the time? That- it's also a clear and present opportunity. Yeah. So not everything is uh, coming at you to, to kill you. <laughs> Some things are coming at you and you can say, wow, how can Australia uh, be best when Julia Gillard was prime minister, she did something, a paper called, a white paper called Australia in the Asian Century. And it, and even though it was removed from the website by the succeeding government and so forth, their policies were the same as what was outlined in that paper because those policies were right. Australia needs to build industries that will appeal to Asian markets. It can educate the children of Asian parents. 
It can provide health care services. It can export wine and things that the middle class wants. Hmm. So uh, I think the country on the whole has been pretty smart about the opportunities. And it's uh, worked in Australia's favor. Baby formula, like four per 10 at uh, Woolworths? That, um, yes. Uh, I th- just think you have um, a lot of people in business doing business in uh, China and throughout Asia who do they've, – they've been doing it for a long time. They understand the markets. They sense what the products are going to be, and they get support um, at the political level on a bipartisan basis. Go out in that world and see if you can make us more competitive. Is it all about trade politics? Like we, we, no. We, trade rules? It's about, it's about power and values. So power – Who's ascending? Who's descending? China clearly ascending. What does that mean? And it's not just China's an economic powerhouse, but China's a military and strategic powerhouse that um, has ambitions and is doing things in the South China Sea, Belt and Road Initiative, doing things throughout the world. you got to pay attention to that. Um, the United States, is it ascending anymore or is it descending under President Trump? And is President Trump permanent? You know, does that really have permanent change in the country? Will the country look inward? Uh, Europe, it was it came out of the global financial crisis, uh, but now is headed seemingly back into recession. Britain exiting from you know the EU. Hmm. What does that mean? That could be that could be a really terrible economic downturn, and the Middle East uh, full of turmoil. So uh, th- there are ups and downs. I, I think what I like about Australia is it tries to be nimble as it looks at the landscape and tries to figure out well how can we do better. We're a small player, so we have a choice. We're either going to be buffeted by these things or we can try and shape some of them at the margins to help Australia out. Do you see any trends across Western politics at the moment? And, and if so, if something stands out for you, how have they touched our way of politics? Well, the threat posed by the Trump presidency, in my thinking, is that he is willfully dismantling the institutions that were put in place after World War II to provide for our security and our prosperity. So you have NATO, you have the European Union, you have the World Trade Organization, uh, you have uh, detente with um, Russia. Uh, you won, America won the Cold War. You have that. You had um, a strong economic relationship with China. And it was kind of um, uh, a win-win for everybody. And Trump, because he believes in America first, and America that's been injured by foreign powers uh, economically for years, and he wants that redressed. And uh, he has nativist sentiments, which uh, when heard by other people are, um, I think there are racial issues that he constantly presents to people and that they have to deal with. And all of that takes American leadership off of its perch, and it's down a few notches. And so what kind of world does that lead to? So where you had a world of... uh, Agreement, concurrence, as expressed by the United Nations, that generally democratic governments are good, and that's what you should always strive for. There are things that you pay attention to, like human rights and the environment, and uh, women's empowerment, and educating kids, and all that. That seems to be replaced by a world where there are powerful leaders, sometimes autocratic leaders, and they're shaping things more than a common consensus by which they should be measured. Do you see strains of that in Australia? No, uh, no, I think Australia has a a direct investment in the world that existed uh, in the 70 years since the end of World War II and wants to see that perpetuated. What I think Australia is dealing with is how do we manage these things coming out of Washington, which could really harm that. 
And I think that's a real issue for Australia. So you have Prime Minister Morrison, which to his credit, he gets along with Donald Trump. I think that's very nice. And uh, he gets along with Donald Trump a lot because uh, there are some consistent, you know, conservative values. But more importantly, Australia does not have a trade surplus with the United States. Mm. If Australia had a trade surplus with the United States, Trump would be after Australia and say, you've got to fix this. This is terrible. I'm going to tear up the U.S.-Australia free trade agreement. Because he's only worried about his voters in, you know, he's only his worried backyard. In Trump's mind, and we see this being played out right now as far as China is concerned, if I'm not winning, I'm losing. And if you're winning, I'm losing. Whereas previous trade and security agreements have been win-win, with Trump it's I win, you lose. And that's where he goes for. In any event, that doesn't apply to Australia because Australia is losing in trade to the United States. And it started with Mike Pence when he came out here a couple months into the, the presidency, president. the vice president, hmm. um, who looks a lot like Michael McCormick. Have you ever noticed in Parliament that if you say, <laughs> how does Mike Pence get into Parliament every day? The Nationals leader. The Nationals leader. He looks just like him. So, But Mike Pence came out here and he uh, had um, a really good visit, a really good visit. And it was solid on the history and solid on the values. And he went back to Washington and he educated the people in the White House about this. And so the, and, and that's stayed true through all the engagements. So the uh, it's not a trick, but you know Morrison's opportunity is to build on that, uh, deal with this very difficult president, and he is a very difficult president, get what he can out of Australia, for Australia, and, uh, and then see where we are you know, whenever the Trump presidency ends, but to try and protect Australia's interests. And I think he's doing that. The uh, problem is, not a problem, but there's no political payoff for doing it. I mean, Trump is really disliked in this country. You do polls on world leaders, and Trump is near the bottom here. People just don't like him. So there's no payoff for Morrison in doing good with Trump because people don't like Trump. When Trump comes out here, if he comes out in December, it's not going to be pretty. No. It would be on the golf course. The golf course anyway. would be pretty, but everything outside the golf course would <laughs> be Melbourne's pretty. a beautiful place. And of course, <laughs> and uh, they could play in Queensland, don't you think? They should. They should. Yeah, but they'll play in Melbourne because, yeah. you know. Do you think we'll see Trump take any mulligans? What do you think? <laughs> He'll use the foot the foot wedge, I think. You think so? <laughs> and drop the ball down the pants and, oh, look at that. Oh, I found my ball. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Have you seen, did you sure. see that putt? Okay, sorry. <laughs> but with with the way he behaves, um, do you, have you noticed anything with, with some of our politicians thinking, oh, this could work out here, like oh. especially our, our, our side of right-wing politics. There, there's things that are leaching into the language. So Clive Palmer, he says, make Australia great again. Hmm. Where did that come from? There's a lot of fake news. There's a lot of lamestream media. So these cultural things are leaching into the Australian body politic and corrupting it to a certain degree. But not it's, it's not the same as in the United States. And I still think that um, politicians who run into um, moral difficulty in their public lives, think about Barnaby Joyce and Donald Trump and everything both men have been through, who prevailed and who didn't, Joyce, and why? Because Australian values are different and politicians are held, the standards are still intact here and they've been corroded greatly in the United States. Is that a little bit as well to do with the system because Barnaby Joyce is part of a party rather than just running a popularity contest, which the presidential election is. You, you like over over there, in case I'm very wrong here, uh, the, the elections that happen every four years, it's for a lot of things, but the presidential election is removed from the party-based. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, here, you can't be prime minister unless you're in parliament. Yeah. And generally, uh, Bob Hawke was an exception who came in really, really late. 
but most prime ministers have emerged from years of service in the parliamentary party, right? So you're but part of a greater you're, narrative. You're part of yeah. something bigger uh, than just the person who is prime minister. Um, but the real difference and why Australia is more immune to these uh, very uh, rough forces is compulsory voting. If you had compulsory voting in America, there's no way that Trump would have won. It, the whole point of uh, uh, American politics, given the system that it is, is to get your vote out. So it's very targeted. He gets, he gets his vote out. But here, that's why Clyde Palmer could not be prime minister. That's why Pauline Hanson would not be prime minister, because of compulsory voting. And that, that changes the whole temperature of politics in this country, and that's for the better. What bends relations most in politics between nations? Like, it seems the democratic nations of the world get on, they go to these big meetings and wear those ridiculous shirts and have the photos and pretend that they like each other. And, you know, everyone gets on and just, okay, I don't like parts of what you're saying, but, you know, we'll, we'll trade that off for something else that I might bring up. But what bends it the most? What makes it well, stretch? there are three things. I mean, there are real security threats where a country is acting aggressively to another country. There are um, economic threats where someone is being unfair in, in world trading markets or, do, or really you know, punishing you, trying to punish you. And then there are leadership issues. Is the person, you know, think of Berlusconi of Italy. I mean, he was very powerful in Italy, but he was derided around the world. And that shapes people's attitudes towards things. Australia hasn't had a problem in that regard for a while. That last one you brought up? No, I mean, oh, the Australian prime ministers. If you look on, you know, on a bipartisan basis, they go to Washington or any other capital in the world. They're really people love Australia. Australians should understand that. Uh, the, so that's not just something we're making up. Oh gosh, no, no. There was um, a, a really great journalist for the New York Times who came out here, R. W. Apple, Johnny Apple Jr., and he was uh, the number one world class. Writer, when a crisis happened, he was there, and it was page one of the New York Times, and he says, "This is what this means." So we were talking, and he says, "You know," and he he'd come to Australia since Vietnam days. He was covering the war, and he'd come to Australia, and uh, he'd, and we'd talk, and he'd say, "You know, this is the way America used to be, and it's really nice." And I said, "No, Johnny, you don't understand. This is the country that America wants to be, and you should appreciate it on that basis." And it's still true. You got a country that delivers for most of its people. You got a healthcare system that works. I mean, all, there are infirmities all over the place, but you got a healthcare system that works. The schools educate the kids. Gun violence is not an issue. HIV is going down. It's a civil society. And so people come here and they say, wow, this is really special. So I hope Australians understand that because it's one of the great things about this country. I've got a flat tire on the way in here this morning. I didn't I think hear it was flat a great tires country, only happen in your neighborhood <laughs> and uh, it doesn't. You know, in other countries in the world, you can drive for hundreds of thousands of miles and not get a flat tire. Yeah, something's putting screws in my tires, but mm -hmm. that's another point for another day. It's not that great it's a, a country. political enemy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a metaphor for <laughs> something. Right, something. I've just got to find out what. Mm -hmm. Got to find out what. Um, <laughs> on that, when we, okay, particularly in the last few years, and you work for Julia Gillard as well, so you're part of this to some degree, um, when we change prime ministers so often, yeah. does that change our standing in the world, how yes. we're viewed? You know, it's, it, that's seen as a big defect in the Australian political system because it's so strange. It, it, so that makes Australia look like Italy, and that's, you know, so you really are a second-rate power 
and uh, with no attributes. But the you know the people who who come in, replace, and execute, and so forth are taken for what they are and and are respected. But that is a problem, uh, and so that so people do wonder is what's in the culture of Canberra that makes that happen. Hopefully, both parties by doing some changes in rules about when you can take out a sitting uh, prime minister that the, the frequency of this will diminish. It, it does hurt. There's no question about it. They have changed those rules. So in what regard in particular that it hurts us in the it, world? It's just seen as not unstable in terms of what Australia stands for or what it wants, but unstable voices. You have a lasting impact on the shape of world affairs if you're around for a while. That's why Angela Merkel is, is so, you know, re- respected. I'm not messing with her, the general no, and, and, and Ronald Reagan, two-term presidents have a lot of influence. So uh, Ronald Reagan did, uh, Bill Clinton did, Barack Obama did. Uh, Trump, th- his re-election, so much hinges on his re-election as to A, where America's going, and B, um, how much influence he'll then thus have on the world. Lasting influence. He has a lot of influence now. Will that last? So much hinges on on whether he's reelected. So Australia, back to an initial point. Yeah. Australia is a little bit immune from this yes. instability with the Western. No, Australia has continuity and uh, uh, clean government institutions that work. So I mean, the country's performing at, at at the higher end of you know what you want out of countries. That's good. Yeah, it is. Can anyone end up with a Trump? Uh, yes, under the right economic conditions, and again because um. You do have this voluntary voting in the United States. He really could motivate the, the disaffected to come out and really express, although they were outvoted by Hillary. You have this other thing on the Electoral College, which is uh, another overlay which can skew a it's, result. And we've had three elections in the past five, you know, where the minority candidate has based won, on won the president. where you win your votes, not that, how many votes you win. Exactly. I was talking to a Republican from Washington the other last week, and I said, he was talking to Trump and this, that, and the other. And I said, well, I hope you vote in Washington, D.C. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> he can please have your vote for Trump. <laughs> How do they feel, by the way, just on Republicans and Donald Trump? He's the, he has he's 80, the he has, leader of the Republicans. He has, he has stratospheric uh, approval ratings inside the Republican Party, the highest among the highest ever. Um, everyone who you know has watched American politics for a long time, as Trump emerged... And being so at variance with traditional Republican thinking, uh, people were saying, well, when are the Republicans going to get together and say, I'm sorry, you're not going to be president. You're, you're the antithesis of what the party stands for, and we're not going to take it anymore. But a winner is a winner, and until he is doing things that is costly to those Republicans serving in Congress and goes after their bases at home, let's say the farmers who are generally Republican – but if the China trade war really hurts them, will they say, we've had enough and we're going to vote Democratic? And will that then affect their members of Congress and their senators? No, we'll so there, there's been no day. break. There's just been no break among Republicans in any, any serious way with Trump. So they've capitulated mm. the whole deal. With the Trump situation, back to my original question there about can anyone end up with a Trump, do you think it's maybe given rise to, and I know Ronald Reagan was well, a, a famous actor before he came in, but the, the, the celebrity figurehead of a government. What people forget about Ronald Reagan was he was governor of California for two terms. He knew how to run this largest state in the country, economy, it's 15 to 20% of U.S. GDP. So he was not, um, someone called him an amiable dunce. Well, at their peril, he won two terms and he understood power. 
uh, Trump, uh, Mark Shields is a great uh, American political writer, and he says, I just kind of wish Donald Trump had run for dog catcher once <laughs> so that he could understand <laughs> what it means to serve. Yeah. And you're not, you know, breaking norms of governance like you'd break China in a China shop. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what's, I think, most um, disturbing about Trump, that he's doing things that no one has seen a president do before in modern times. And that is very unsettling. How, you know, how stable are we? Is he, um, what is he capable of doing? Is something horrible going to happen tomorrow? And that is a, a real, and that's why the anxiety level in the United States is high. You go to the U.S. and you talk to people, either they're sick of politics or they're really, really nervous. If there, say, we mentioned it a couple of times, if there is a trade war between U.S. and China, so USA, well, we're going to tax you, China, an astronomical amount to bring your goods in here and China yep. return serve, and then little Australia, who's got China to the north of us and we're exporting a lot there, yep. and we're such good old friends, old mates with you, the good old US of A from, from a century ago. Yep. Where does that leave Australia if there's this massive blow-up between these two big superpowers well, again, on a trade level? an opportunity and a threat. If, uh, if California wine can't get into China, maybe Australian wine from Western Australia can. So there may be, if pork can't come from Iowa, well, maybe Australian pork can. So I think there's some short-term opportunity. But an all-out trade war, according to all the experts, is going to depress the hell out of the world economy. And if the world economy is depressed, then Australian exports generally are depressed. You can't, uh, no one is immune. And even the United States will get hit. And so it's, it really doesn't work to Trump's advantage. He needs a good economy. The economy is the strongest thing he has going for him, and it's really done well. And he has a lot of credibility among voters because of it. But if the economy goes south and America is hurting in a recession next year, that's going to hurt him. So ultimately, he's got to figure out ultimately, well, at what point do I really have to make peace with China is to avoid this catastrophe of a global economic slowdown because it will come back and bite them. If it does happen, who should Australian politicians suck up to the most then? Wherever they can sell their goods. This is all about, well, trade and security. I yeah. mean, and the security issues are not going to go away at all. And the United States is a Pacific power and Australia is properly aligned with the United States. There needs to be, there is uh, uh, exceptionally good work that goes below the White House level uh, between the security institutions and agencies between the two countries. They know what they're doing. And that's a step outside politics, isn't that's it? That's a step outside politics. And, uh, and that uh, will be maintained. And then China has to figure out, there, it's not a collision with China, but there is a competition at the least with China. But uh, under bad leadership, it becomes a real collision. Under good leadership, it's, you manage it. No one's going to fire a rocket at Australia, surely. Uh Watch. <laughs> no, they shouldn't. Okay. They shouldn't. <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> um, in a general sense, how are our politicians, our general politicians viewed overseas? Oh, um, it doesn't get below the PM level. You know, you, you just don't know the superstars in the parliament, and there are many superstars in the parliament. So it just doesn't permeate to that level. Where reputations are made, you have delegations that go overseas and there's a lot of parliamentary travel. I think that's a really, really worthwhile thing to do. And so you impress your counterparts in other countries, and then you get known and, you know, move up the food chain, and ultimately that pays benefits. But, you know, for members of parliament, and I know taxpayers say, oh, they're spending too much money, it costs too much, and all that stuff. The value is um, absolutely worthwhile. 
you, you've walked the halls in Canberra, um, yep. working with Julia Gillard. You've yep. also walked the halls in Washington, yep. um, in Congress while Obama was in in power. What are the subtle differences in terms of ego, in terms of functionality? Actually, they strike me as the same. I mean, um, how much press am I getting today? I mean, that's really an important issue. Hmm. But but there's an institutional issue which is really significant and which explains a lot of the differences between the two countries and how their democracies work. This is the Westminster system. You control a majority in the House of Representatives, you get your stuff through. In Washington, it's a constitutional system. You have a majority in the House of Representatives, you may or may not get it through because uh, you're not bound to vote with your party on the floor. Everyone is a free agent. And you get to the Senate, and you need, out of 100 senators, there are rules that say you want to pass something, you really got to have 60 votes, not 50. But at the same time, what's happened in Washington is the poison of the Westminster system, which is, I oppose you, I will kill you. Uh, anything you say, I'm against. I don't care if I endorsed it two years ago. I'm going to oppose it today because you're proposing it. That's the Westminster system. But then you have the votes of the majority. You still get your thing through. What's happened in Washington is that you have the Westminster atmosphere imposed on a constitutional system of checks and balances. And so there's no coherence in the how the chamber operates anymore which means that nothing happens, which means that democracy can't function, which means that people are disappointed because Washington isn't doing anything. This is a long-term structural corrosive problem in American democracy, and I don't know the answer. The answer is when people stop trying to kill each other like they do here. And, uh, but that's not, I don't see any way out from that um, poisonous atmosphere. It is a real problem because it means that, that Congress can't act, and that means that People are frustrated with their government, and so America is weaker. That's a problem. So it's a lot smoother here. Well, a lot smoother here. Yeah. No, you get, you know, even you have a one-seat majority, right, which is what the government has. They get stuff through. And mm. so coming from Washington, we're deadlock. Coming here, Julia Gillard, minority government, passed over 500 bills, did things. That was great. How's the atmosphere? Is it toxic between sides? More toxic here or more toxic over in... What, I, what I've been saying is it, it's, it's now approaching the same degree of toxicity in Washington as it has long been here. And that's, that's not good for anyone, but at least here you can get something done. There, it leads to this gridlock. They hold a grudge more over there. Uh, no, not... Well, the system allows the si- them to hold a grudge more. Uh, uh, no, th- what they've... They're being rewarded for going down the road of poison. Okay. That's... So... Uh, yeah. Th- the parties are more solid in their identity being poisonous with and that's okay that that's the way they are but you, but you have this legislative system that requires something different if it's going to function properly when i first started working in congress in the 70s there were republicans who voted with democrats and we got stuff done there were democrats who voted with ronald reagan and got stuff done that ended in the 90s and now it's just all republican and all democrat and there is no compromise and there is no bipartisanship Barack Obama in his first two years had supermajorities. He got stuff done. But then it ended two years later, still in his first term, and he was paralyzed. Trump uh, cannot really get, he got one thing through with the tax bill. He can't get regular legislation through to build the wall. So he's doing a lot of executive orders, stuff like that. It's, um, Washington is a pretty ugly place. Who's the greatest leader that you've ever seen in your time covering and watching and being involved with politics and does an Australian get in the conversation? Here in Australia, well, you know, Bob Hawke passed away a couple months ago, and he was uh, he was prime minister when, when uh, I got here, and he was really something to watch. Keating, I, I kind of wish I'd been around when Neville Rand was uh, 
premier of New South Wales because I, you know, the state was probably was really run at a certain, you know, kind of uh, different level. I was in primary school when that I was all I was worried about was getting my sausage roll at the Thursday lunchtime. I so, hope um, I hope it said Neville Rand sends you a sausage roll. <laughs> yeah, <Did it>? yeah? <laughs> I don't know. It might have as long as it had sauce. And and then um, Ronald Reagan. I mean, I'm on the opposite side of politics from Ronald Reagan, but I sure respected uh, his leadership power. And Barack Obama was able to lift the country to new heights and levels of civility and unity. Um, Got corroded pretty quick, didn't it? That's the shocker. After Barack Obama, you get Donald Trump. So what is what you know? Something's fundamentally wrong in that equation, right? <laughs> and it really hurt. And it it hurt. And the country's um, hurting today because of that. It's like following a bowl of ice cream with uh, the spiciest curry you could imagine. It's kind of out of kilter with each other. It certainly is. It's a bad meal. <laughs> yeah, but overall, we're in a pretty good place here. You, you... Australia's in good shape. And okay. it should be very proud of where it is. Okay, cool. Because this was to delve into the problems and see, see if what was there. So. Know, there's politics issues, but a key thing is leadership. If you have really, there's a dearth of great leadership around the world today, really outstanding leaders. Is that because corporate world takes the best ones? Yes. Uh, in, the, in, in the 70s, when this generation was, our generation, you know, was, was coming up, people joined politics for a cause. There was Vietnam War, civil rights, things like that. And th- then I think they were snapped up by law. Wall Street, Asia, and Silicon Valley, hedge funds. So it's uh, the great minds are elsewhere. I think there's a new cycle about to begin of great minds wanting to come back into politics to fix things that people see as real injustices. So that gives me hope for the future. Gives us all hope, Bruce. Thank you very much for your time and really enjoyed it. Great, me too. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.